0: The ancient Greeks considered taste to be the lowest and grossest form of the senses. Vision can discern the subtleties of high art or the smile of a loved one, but taste mission is simple, to distinguish food from everything else. The Greeks thought the temptations it posed in carrying out that mission clouded the mind, end quote. Judaism, as Ray noted, disagrees. It does not believe in denying the place of food in the realm of the sacred. Welcome to Bible 365, Episode 290, The Temple Blueprint. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Let us speak of Jews and food. Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik once reflected on the central role that food plays in Judaism. Quoting the obligation in Deuteronomy to eat of the offerings in the presence of God, he noted how strange commandments like these might seem to other worldviews and contrast the Jewish approach with that of the ancient Greeks. Rabbi Soloveitchik wrote, quote, The animalistic behavior of eating, upon which man's life depends, has been refined by the halacha and transformed into a religious ritual and an elevated moral act. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God in the place where he will choose to establish his name, the tithes of your new grain and wine and oil, and the firstlings of your herds and flocks, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God forever. A commandment of this sort cannot be understood by Greek moral philosophy. The beast eats, man thinks and cognizes the spiritual, the general, and the ideal. The intellect comes close to God, but the stomach does not. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord? Can there be two more extreme opposites than these? But it is nevertheless so. End quote. In other words, eating in the presence of the divine, eating offerings, eating tithes in Jerusalem before the temple can be a form of sanctification and worship. As Rabbi goes on to note, there are so many commandments in the Torah that involve eating. And first and foremost among them are the celebrations of the holidays, which originally and ideally took place in Jerusalem through partaking in the festival feasts of the holiday offerings. Rabbi noted that there are those who question this aspect of traditional Judaism, asking, as he puts it, what sort of a religion is this, a religion of the stomach? To this, replied, Quote, Yes, indeed. The halakha is a doctrine of the body, but there lies its greatness. By sanctifying the body, it creates one whole unit of psychosomatic man who worships God with his spirit and his body and elevates the beast in him to the eternal heavens. End quote. The sanctification of the physical, the spiritual enhancement of eating, this we have seen is a central aspect of Judaism, which is a faith that seeks not to ignore the material world, but rather to make it holy. And rightly understood, this aspect of the Jewish faith can be seen in the symbolism of the additions made by Solomon to the sacred structure for which he is eternally known. In order to understand what was unique about Solomon's temple and what it has to teach us, let us briefly review the setup of the sacred vessels in the tabernacle before the temple was created. The holiest portion of the tabernacle is comprised of the Kodesh, the sacred, also known as the hechal, and the Kodesh Korashim, the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies contained the Ark of the Covenant, and marked the locus of the dwelling place of the Divine. The Ark's special nature is expressed by the Kruvim, the two cherubs that are turned lovingly toward one another, a symbol we have suggested of the intimate marital encounter between Israel and the Almighty. In the room known as the Holy, divided from the Holy of Holies by a parochet, a curtain, there are three sacred vessels. On one side there is the Menorah, the lampstand. On the other, there is the shulchan, the table, bearing the lechem apanim, the twelve showbread that are replaced every Sabbath and eaten by the priests. And then, precisely in the center, exactly opposite the Ark on the other side of the curtain, there is the Mizbeach ha the golden altar of incense. All of these, the spaces and the vessels, the Ark, the menorah, the table, the incense altar, featured in Solomon's temple as well. But to this, much else was added. In order to emphasize the sacred symbolism of the Ark, Solomon also created two enormous cherubim inside the Holy of Holies, their wings extending over the ark itself. And he added images of cherubim on the curtain or veil, dividing the holy from the Holy of Holies. Thus, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 10. And in the most holy house he made two cherubims of image work and overlaid them with gold. And the wings of the cherubims were twenty cubits long. One wing of the one cherub was five cubits reaching to the wall of the house, and the other wing was likewise five cubits reaching to the wing of the other cherub. And one wing of the other cherub was five cubits reaching to the wall of the house, and to the other wing was five cubits also joining to the wing of the other cherub. The wings of these cherubim spread themselves forth twenty cubits, and they stood on their feet, and their faces were inward. And he made the veil of blue and purple and crimson and fine linen and wrought cherubim thereof. Thus it was that when the ark actually was brought into the Holy of Holies, with its poles bulging slightly against the sacred veil, the glory of God descended, and the indwelling of the Almighty was made manifest, reifying the symbolic proclamation of the cherubim themselves. 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 7 And the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto its place, to the inner sanctuary of the house, into the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread forth their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim covered the ark and the staves thereof above. And they drew out the staves of the ark, that the ends of the staves were seen from the ark before the inner sanctuary, but they were not seen without. And there it is unto this day. There was nothing in the ark save the two tablets which Moses put therein at Chorev, when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place, for all the priests that were present were sanctified and did not then wait by division. Also the Levites, which were the singers, all of them of Asaph, of Haman, of Yudutun, with their sons and their brethren being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the east end of the altar with them 120 priests sounding with trumpets. It came to pass, as the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loyal love endureth forever, that then the house was filled to the cloud, the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. Thus, the additions of Solomon to the temple's Holy of Holies highlight the themes of the tabernacle itself, the intense close relationship between Israel and the divine through the edifice that has been created. The same perhaps can be said for the section known as the Holy, outside the Holy of Holies, though here the additions are somewhat more surprising. Whereas the tabernacle in the Holy had one menorah and one table, Solomon added many more, but he clearly ensured that however many more he made, there would be equal numbers of lamps and tables of showbread. Chapter 4, verse 7. And he made ten lampstands of gold according to their form and set them in the temple, five on the right hand and five on the left. He also made ten tables and placed them in the temple, five on the right side and five on the left. And he made a hundred basins of gold. We see from here something interesting, which is that the rule obligating the presence of one menorah and one showbread table is a minimum, not a maximum. However, it seems that whenever a menorah is added, a table of showbread must be added as well. They must be equal in number. Meanwhile, it seems that the altar of incense remained singular, still poised perfectly in the middle of the holy. Verse 18, Thus Solomon made all these vessels in great abundance, for the weight of brass cannot be found out. And Solomon made all the vessels that were for the house of God, the golden altar also, and the tables whereon the showbread was set. Moreover, the lampstands with their lamps, that they should burn after the manner before the inner sanctuary of pure gold. At this point, we must understand the symbolism. The menorah, the great source of light in the temple and tabernacle, embodies, we have previously suggested, enlightenment, the sanctification of the intellect. The seven branches of the menorah have been seen as a symbol of the seven branches of wisdom. The table of the showbread, containing food that was eaten in the presence of God by the priests every week, embodies the sanctification of the physical. The altar of incense, in between these two objects, that creates a cloud that suffuses the sanctuary, creating a sense of the numinous, embodies the realm of the spirit, and, as commentators note, if it stands in the center of the room, it is meant to remind us that we are to join and sanctify both the intellectual and physical aspects of our existence. The menorah representing the intellect, and the table, embodying the physicality of food, are mediated by the altar of incense. And if there must always be the same amount of lampstands and tables, it is because for Judaism, the intellectual and physical are both realms of the sacred. Thus, the blueprint of the temple expresses the worldview of Judaism itself, one which may set itself apart from other approaches. The food writer John McQuaid, in a striking echo of Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, wrote as follows, For thousands of years, scientists and philosophers have viewed taste and flavor as less-than-worthy subjects for study. The ancient Greeks considered taste to be the lowest and grossest form of the senses. Vision can discern the subtleties of high art or the smile of a loved one, but taste's mission is simple, to distinguish food from everything else. The Greeks thought the temptations it posed in carrying out that mission clouded the mind, end quote. Judaism, as R. noted, disagrees. It does not believe in denying the place of food in the realm of the sacred. Thus, Chronicles tells us how after the altar was dedicated, the Israelites in Judaism continued to mark the building of the temple through eating and feasting during the festival of Sukkot. Also at that time Solomon kept the feast seven days and all Israel with him, a very great congregation, from the entering in of Hamath unto the river of Egypt. And in the eighth day they made a solemn assembly, for they kept the dedication of the altar seven days and the festival seven days. And on the twenty-third day of the seventh month he sent the people away into their tents, glad and merry and heart for the goodness that the Lord had showed unto David and to Solomon and to Israel, his people. Judaism, of course, celebrates the intellect and demands its sanctification. We are the people of the book, or indeed of the books. We are the people of the Bible, and also of the Talmud, and so much else. But anyone who has experienced a Sabbath or Jewish holiday knows how love and sanctity and warmth are experienced in the foods of those moments, and how this, too, is a central medium of the Jewish religious experience. The writer Elizabeth Ehrlich describes in her memoir, Miriam's Kitchen, how her experience of the traditional Jewish food of her mother-in-law Miriam, a Holocaust survivor, brought her to more fully embraced Jewish tradition. Ehrlich writes, quote, What made me value my inheritance as treasure, not burden? The luck that has placed me as an adult in range of Miriam's Kitchen. My mother-in-law Miriam, born in a small village in Jewish Poland, survived the Holocaust. A keeper of rituals and recipes and of stories, she cooks to recreate a lost world and to prove that unimaginable loss is not the end of everything. She is motivated by duty to ancestors and descendants, by memory and obligation, and an impossible wish to make the world whole, end quote. Reflecting on the horrors that Miriam has seen, Elizabeth Ehrlich notes that Miriam's determination to continue to cook for Shabbat and the holidays is itself an act of determination, faith, continuity, and sanctification. Or as she puts it, quote, I'm sure the flavor is altered when you have lived Miriam's life, yet serious cooking is an essentially optimistic act. It reaches into the future, vanishes into memory, and creates the desire for another meal, End quote. Judaism sanctifies the intellect. That is what the menorah reminds us. But the menorah is paralleled by the showbread table, which contains loaves eaten by the priests, reminding us of another aspect of Judaism, to which scripture has also given voice. Uruki taste and see that the Lord is good. This is Mayor Salovechuk, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.